Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the words of this hymn that we so desperately need to make our earnest prayer to you. Lord, we do pray that you would take our lives and let it then be consecrated to you ever now and forever. Father, I pray that as we come to your word that you would open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have an old friend who is a a really faithful brother and a, a really powerful preacher who has been serving in the same church for over two decades. He was never the senior pastor at this church, but he was on the ministerial staff and one of the key leaders and was actually in the regular preaching rotation at this, at this church. In recent years, however, he and the, the senior pastor have had a, a falling out. And as a result of this, um, he no longer preaches at the church. He is no longer on the ministerial staff at the church. And he's actually no longer welcome to do any teaching or service at the church because of this falling out that he's had. And not long ago, I had a chance to visit with this brother who I don't think any of you would know. He's in a different state, long way from here. And I didn't know about any of this sad situation until he he described it to me in this conversation that we had. And, And I was actually aghast to learn how things had deteriorated in his relationship with the pastor and at the church and in some of the unhealthy things that the pastor was doing, quite apart from what had happened to um, the pastor's relationship with my friend. And so as, as I was listening to all this, I finally turned to him and I said to him, why are you still going to this church? And he said two things to me. First thing he said was, he said, because the church is still preaching the gospel faithfully. It's not an apostate church. Second, he said he's staying because this was the church he was converted in. It was the church he was discipled in. And it's the church that he's given his whole life to. And so he viewed this church as his home and as his family. And and he loves the church, even though he's had to endure this bitterness of this falling out with the pastor over something that really wasn't his fault. And then I'll never forget what he said next to me. He said that his love for the church is like the love he has for his family. He said, we, don't, we do not choose our family. We don't weigh the pros and the cons of loving our family. Our acceptance of our family and our home is not like a house that we can leave when we get tired of it. And then he quoted G.K. Chesterton, who said this, It's the fortress of our family with the flag flying on the turret. And the more miserable it is, it is the the less we should leave it. The point is not that this world is too sad to love or too glad not to love. The point is that when you do love a thing, its gladness is a reason for loving it. And its sadness is a reason for loving it more. Love for your family is not based on what is deserved. It's not based on pros and cons. You don't look at your parents or at your siblings 
and weigh the pros and cons of each of them and then decide whether you ought to love them. Nobody does that. You belong to your family long before you ever think to ask if it's nice to belong to your family. And most of us have a kind of loyalty to our families long before we learn to admire our families. And that kind of love seeks the family's good and flourishing no matter the family's condition. It's that kind of love. And I would argue it's only that kind of love that can become transformative within a family. A man may love his mother unconditionally, but that love does not mean that he is indifferent to her if she is a drunk. His love does not simply affirm her sad condition. His love moves him to seek her welfare and her improvement. In other words, it makes him love her more. In the same way, my friend told me this. He said, I love my church not because she's perfect. I know she's not. I love her because she's mine and I am hers. And we are a family. And the more miserable she is, the more I want to see a change. The more I want to see her flourish. And so he told me, as painful as that is for him at that moment, he said he had to stay at the church. So we're sitting there in the front seat of a car, and he's telling me all this, and I just about broke into tears. I thought it was one of the most beautiful, moving expressions of love for a congregation that I had ever heard. I, would have, I probably would have left that church. But this brother's a better man than I am. G.K. Chesterton once said this about the love of one's homeland. Listen to what he said. He said, people first paid honor to a spot and afterwards gained glory for it. Men did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because they had loved her. Now think about what this means. Do you understand that the Bible teaches us to love one another in this congregation like we are a family? Have you thought about what this means? If you are waiting for this church to be perfect, if you are waiting for this church to be great, or if you are waiting for this church to get all of its ducks in a row before you love it and give your life and loyalty to it, you will be waiting for the rest of your life. And you will be waiting for the rest of your life for that at any church that you might go to. And, and you know why that's the case? Because this church is not this building. This church is me and Jim Hamilton and Alan Hodges and Sarah Tennant and Mike Franz and Caleb Payne, and every other name that you're, you could take out the directory and, and read. This church is the people, and we are not going to love each other because we are great. We are going to be great because we love each other. Or we won't be anything at all. That's what Paul is at pains to explain in 1 Corinthians 13. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to be looking at all 13 verses. As you know, this chapter is sometimes referred to as the love chapter. And it's familiar to us because we often hear it read at, at wedding ceremonies. 
And that's not a bad thing to have it, have it read at a wedding, but we do need to be careful not to misunderstand what this chapter is all about. This is not Paul's rhapsody to romantic love. This is Paul's sober explanation about the one thing that must define God's people, and that one thing is love. Love is the very thing that was missing in all of the divisions that we've read about at the church at Corinth. And its absence, the absence of love, was driving the misuse of the gifts within the church, and in particular, the gift of tongues. And so that's why Paul says at the end of chapter 12, we saw last time we were in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, and I will, still, I will show you a still more excellent way, which is probably better rendered with a superlative, I will show you the most excellent way. And he says that because really the only way that is Christian is the way of love. There's actually not another path. There's plan A, love, and no plan B for the Christian life. That is the most excellent way. It's the only way. And so Paul is going to make his case for love being the marker of the community of the people of God, he's going to make his case in three steps. He's going to talk about the necessity of love in verses 1 through 3. He's going to describe the character of love in verses 4 through 7. And then he's going to talk about the permanence of love in verses 8 through 13. So that's where we're going. So first of all, look at the necessity of love in verses 1 through 3. The Apostle Paul says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, this word translated as love is the Greek term that many of you have heard of before, agape. This word is very seldom used in wider Greek to refer to romantic love. <clears throat> what it does generally refer to is the quality of warm regard for and interest in another person. It's the esteem or the affection, the regard that we have for other people. Agape is the essential Christian virtue. If you don't hear anything else, you need to hear that. It's the essential Christian virtue. In Galatians 5.22, Paul says that agape is the first fruit of the Spirit, meaning if the Spirit of God lives inside of you, the first thing that becomes evident that he is there is that love is there. Agape is there. If agape is absent, the spirit is absent. It is the first essential Christian virtue. Jesus himself says that by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love, agape, for one another. John 13, 35. Paul uses agape nine times in these 13 verses. So it's very clear that his aim is to flesh out what this love means for us and what it's supposed to look like in our lives. So in this context, keep in mind that Paul wishes to tell the Corinthians what love should look like in the midst of their divisions and in particular in their misuse of the spiritual gifts and in particular the gift of tongues. And so notice here that he adopts a hypothetical tone. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, we know 
from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 18 that Paul himself spoke in tongues. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He says it right out. So that's not a hypothetical that Paul spoke in tongues. That is a fact. He spoke in tongues. So why this hypothetical tone if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels? Well, while it is true <clears throat> that Paul speaks in the tongues of men, there is no evidence that he or anyone else ever spoke in the tongues of angels. The tongues of angels, I think, appears here as kind of a hyperbolic extension of the, gifts of of the gift of tongues. It's not the nature of tongues. and the, the nature of the gift of tongues was actually the miraculous ability to speak a human language that a person doesn't know. But this is a, the tongues of angels is a hyperbolic extension. And so Paul is speaking sort of hyper, hypothetically, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. So it's as if Paul is say, saying, even if I speak in the tongues of men, which I do more than all of you, and even if I were to speak in the tongues of angels, which nobody does, but it, that would be extraordinary, extraordinary if they did, even if I did both of those things, it would be absolutely meaningless without love. So verses two through three have the same kind of hyperbolic expression embedded in, in them. So take a look at verse two. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, does Paul have prophetic powers? Now, as an apostle, of course he does have the gift of prophecy. Does Paul understand some mysteries as a result of God's direct revelation to him? Of course he does understand some mysteries. But here's the question. Does Paul know all mysteries? Does he possess all knowledge? Does he have all faith? Well, the answer to that is no. No one on this side of glory knows God or his plans perfectly. No, nor does anyone believe God perfectly on this side of the new creation. So again, Paul's moving from something that he does, to, does do, which he prophesies, to a, a hyperbolic expression of something that nobody does, which is have perfect knowledge and have perfect faith. Nevertheless, he says, even if he could do all of those extraordinary things, it wouldn't mean anything without love. So notice what he's done here in verses 1 and 2. He runs through a brief list of gifts, gifts that he's already talked about in chapter 12. He, he mentioned in chapter 12 the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, the gift of knowledge. He even talked about the gift of, of faith. And he's saying that none of those spiritual gifts matter if you don't have love. And then verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, in verse 3, Paul is moving from loveless spiritual gifts to loveless good deeds. And so I think if you look there, the meaning of giving away all that I have, that's, that's clear enough. But what does he mean by delivering his body over to be burned? And depending on what translation you look at, it might be rendered differently. Unfortunately, I think both the ESV and the NASB reflect a bad 
textual variation when they render it as the burning of, of one's body. I think the best reading indicates that Paul's talking about boasting, not burning. I think the NIV captures it. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So the issue here is giving away all that I have, even giving away my body to suffering and maybe even the death. If I do all of that and I don't have any love, it's, it's really no different than like what the Pharisees were doing in Jesus's ministry who we know were doing all kinds of good, good works, maybe accepting some harsh treatment of the body, but what? They were hypocrites. Jesus said they were only doing what they were doing to be seen by men. In other words, their boast was in themselves. Their boast wasn't in God. So in that case, even their good works are deceptive manifestations of sinful pride. Bottom line here, Paul's just saying, even altruism is meaningless without love. Even giving up your life means nothing without love. Now, as you look at those first three verses, there's one item that I want you not to miss. I want you to notice the progression of what results from loveless gifts and loveless good deeds. In verse one, what happens? I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. A noisy gong or clanging cymbal. That means that when people hear you, they can't understand you and you don't sound good. In other words, you're, a, you're an offense to those who hear you. If you're speaking in tongues within, in a way without love. In verse 2, he says, I am nothing. One commentator says that this means nothing in the sight of God. And then in verse 3, he says, I gain nothing. So I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You're an offense to those who hear you. I am nothing in the sight of God. You're an offense to God. I gain nothing. You're an offense to yourself. There is absolutely no profit at the end of the day in any of your works or giftings if there is no love. In this church, there's absolutely no profit at the end of the day for any of us if there is no love. Have you ever known maybe a gifted Christian leader, perhaps someone with a tremendous gift of teaching or leadership, maybe somebody that you have admired? Have you ever had the occasion of getting to know that leader personally only to find out that he or she is filled with pride and self-regard? I have. I also know how difficult it is to listen to that person teach or preach when I perceive that everything they are doing to be loveless pride. Everybody else who isn't in the know may think that that person's the cat's meow, but I can only hear a noisy, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, let's be honest. Sometimes we're tempted to have feelings when we ought to be uh, more forbearing or when we need to let go of a grudge against an imperfect brother who is, who is struggling. Nevertheless, there are people out there so full of themselves, you just can't get past it no matter how hard you try. This is what happens when love is absent from giftedness. It renders the gifted man useless 
to his brothers and sisters. It profits the gifted man nothing, and it becomes an offense to God. Now, i got to be honest with you. I got really convicted thinking and praying about this text as I was preparing for this sermon. I actually had to think about, do I show the kind of love to you, this congregation, that would make it easy for you to listen to me? Or am I a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal to you? Am I showing my wife and my kids the kind of love that makes it easy for them to listen to me? Or am I a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal to them? Well, here's the thing. There's not a one of us in here that's batting a thousand in, in the love department. We all have so far to go. But I, I wonder if we could all just agree together that we're not going to give up on this. And we're not going to give up on each other in this. We are not going to love each other because we know each other to be great. We all know better than that. But we will be great if we love each other in spite of anything else. Faith working through love will be the doorway to our becoming a city set on a hill. The only thing that will make us different and conspicuous to those who are looking at us is if we love each other unconditionally. If we know how to forgive and to move on on the other side of forgiveness. If we know how to repent and to keep loving each other through those kinds of difficulties. The big question is, is what does that kind of transforming love look like? And Paul's going to spell that out in the next several verses. So the first thing is the necessity of love in verses 1 through 3. But in verses 4 through 7, he's going to describe the character of love. So everybody look at verse 4. <clears throat> Paul says this in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Now, the first two characteristics in, in verse 4 are positive, followed by three that are negative. So we can think of love in terms of what it is. We can think of, of love in terms of what it is not. And, and Paul says, first of all, that it is patient. Now, I wonder sometimes if this word patient is actually... The, really capturing the sense of this term, the word literally means something like long of anger, okay? Meaning that it takes a long time to get this person's anger going. That's what the, the patient person is. This is that quality in a person that enables them to bear up under provocation without complaint. So here's the question. How are you doing in the love department? How did you do this past week on love? If love means bearing up under provocation without complaint, how did you do? Now, I can tell you right now, I, I looked at myself and saw myself coming up short, already in over my head on the first thing. But you know what? We don't have to be the kind of people that are prickly in our anger with it, our anger on a hair trigger. Husbands, we don't have to be that way with our wives. 
You don't have to be that way with your kids. Moms, you, don't, you can maintain equi equanimity in the face of provocations from the kids that you're with all day. Workers, you don't have to have a chip on your shoulder at the office. Students, you don't have to have that at school. If you are going to love the way that God calls you to love, you have to be patient. Not only when somebody is annoying, but also you have to be patient when you're wronged. He says love is patient. It's not given to provocation. He also says it's kind. I think the kindness here follows right along with patience because kindness refers to someone who's morally good and benevolent. But the three negative statements are the ones that follows. Look what he says. He says love does not envy. Now, now to envy, the, the word that he uses here for envy is a word that means to have intense negative feelings about another person's achievements or successes. It's a word that usually expresses intense desire, but in this case, it's a desire for somebody else's stuff. You can't rejoice with them about their blessings in their life because you resent the fact that their achievements are not yours. And so you stew in jealousy and in bitterness. Paul's saying love does not do this. When you feel those attitudes creeping up in you, you can just go ahead and mark it down that those feelings are not coming from love. They are coming from the flesh, not from the spirit. In that moment, when you feel such things, you know that you need to repent and that you need to change your heart before your heart begins to act out in destructive words and deeds against that person. Paul says love does not boast. We all know what a boaster is. A boaster is a braggart. This is the person that you meet who doesn't really listen to you when you're talking. They're just waiting for an opening so that they can toot their own horn about themselves. Their self-regard is manifest in the way that they try to draw attention to themselves and their own achievements, real or imagined. Paul's saying, love does not boast. Love heeds the wisdom of Proverbs 27.2. Let another praise you, not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. Love, if you're going to be a loving person, you're not going to be somebody who's going around making much of himself. We're all tempted to do that, but love does not do this. And so when you feel the boast rising up in your heart, love would say, put your hand over your mouth and quietly renounce that feeling before God. Paul says love is not arrogant. The word translated as arrogant literally means puffed up. It's kind of like our expression, he's got a big head. It's not really a statement about the person's size, it's a statement about their heart. To be puffed up is to have an exaggerated self-conception. It is the state of the heart that causes boasting that we just read about. So not only is it not love, it is anti-love. If love is a regard and esteem for someone else, then pride is a regard and esteem for oneself. It is the mindset on the flesh, and it cannot please God. So love cannot and never will be arrogant. If you want to love God as God calls you to love, then you have to crucify pride. You have to name it and shame it every time that you feel it. You confess it to God and you turn away. <clears throat> and you won't be able to love God 
or love your neighbor unless you do. Look at verse 5. Paul says, love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. When he says it's not rude, rude, I think rude probably doesn't capture the offense that's really indicated by the, the phrase here. The, the phrase that is being translated as rude actually, um, uh, the, the word that's being translated as rude actually means to behave disgracefully or dishonorably towards another person. So it, it's the word that's used in, in, in uh, Romans 1.27 where Paul attaches dishonorable behavior to the sin of, of homosexuality. It may be that there's a sexual connotation here in 1 Corinthians 13. In any case, the term indicates behavior that deviates from a norm and that dishonors someone else in the process. Paul's saying love doesn't behave that way. You just don't do that. Paul says love does not insist on its own way. Maybe a, a, a more literal rendering would be love isn't self-seeking. It's um, a person who's self-seeking has the same mindset that Paul warns against in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, where he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Or in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul says love is not irritable. Irritable is not unlike what Paul said about being long of anger in verse 4. It means that you're not being easily provoked to anger. Paul says it's, love is not resentful. I think resentful is not a terrible translation, but I still think the NASB has, has a better rendering of this. The NASB says, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, this is really difficult, this, this particular one, because we sometimes find it hard to forgive when we're sinned against. Even if we don't keep a physical list of the ways that someone has mistreated us, mistreated us we all tend to keep a mental ledger of demerits. And when we do that, we're keeping a logbook on someone else's sin. Now, why is it that we do that sometimes? Well, we do that because we're easily provoked in self-seeking. We take account of the wrongs suffered and we don't let them go. Now, I'm not saying that you should never work through wrongs that are suffered, even wrongs that may have happened in the long past. You should work through those with people. When you have relationships, you have to work through conflicts. But once you've worked through them to forgiveness, you can't come back and keep, keep an account of the wrong suffered as if there was never any reconciliation. Love doesn't do that. It doesn't use the past as a bludgeon for the present. When issues are dealt with and forgiven, they're not dredged up later as a weapon. Look at verse 6. Paul says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. How many of you have, have ever had a, a wayward loved one or a friend say to you, You know, if you loved me, you would just want me to be happy? Uh, if you haven't already heard that from somebody, you're going to hear that eventually from somebody. And people are usually bringing that line out to justify some kind of sin that they want you to not pay attention to or to not get upset about. And you will hear it from a person perhaps justifying adultery. If you loved me, you would just want me to be happy with this other person who's not my spouse. 
You will hear it from the person justifying perversions. If you loved me, you would just want me to be happy. You will hear it from the person justifying their addiction to video games or whatever. If you loved me, you would just want me to be happy. And the subtext of all that is that love equals unconditional affirmation. That is not what love is. Love is not unconditional affirmation. When a person is asking you to affirm and support sin, love cannot and must not ever rejoice in unrighteousness. Love can only rejoice in the truth. That's what this text is saying. That means that we can love sinners just like God does, but we can never love sin because God hates sin. That means that sometimes godly love is going to require humble, godly confrontation. Love does not run from those kinds of confrontations when it is necessary. Anyone who does run from those kinds of confrontations is not being loving. Love never rejoices in unrighteousness, but always rejoices in the truth. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And this final series of four here is like a sandwich. The bearing and the enduring are like the bread on the outside of the sandwich, and the believing and the hoping are like the meat inside the sandwich. The bearing and the enduring both indicate the ability to maintain a belief or a course of action in the face of opposition. So it's, in other words, it's perseverance and faithfulness to Christ in the face of trials. The believing and the hoping sometimes, I think, are um, misinterpreted. They're, they're sometimes taken to mean a, a, a kind of a foolish gullibility, as if the person who is believing all things and hoping all things is someone who, who will believe or hope in anyone or in anything, no matter how foolish or untrustworthy that thing or person is. I think that misunderstanding is often due to something that's been lost in translation. The, the, the term that's translated four times as all things, um, bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, that term that's translated as all things often has this kind of a, an adverbial sense. And I think that's the case here, and we would probably best be rendered as always. And so um, the misunderstanding also, uh, this misunderstanding of unlimited gullibility fails to see that for Paul, the object of faith and hope is none other than God himself. It's not that you're trusting anybody or any old thing that's untrustworthy. The object of faith is always God himself. So Paul's point is simply to say this, love always bears up under trial. Love always keeps trust in God. Love always hopes in God. Love always endures trial. And then finally in verse 8, love never fails. So do you see the character of love that Paul is describing? He's saying that this character of love is what's supposed to describe all of us in this room in the way that we relate not just to our families, yes, them, but the way that we relate to each other in here. That's what's supposed to characterize us. So how are you doing on love? Once you clear away all the sentimentality and you get down to what the Bible says love is and is not, how are you doing? 
And at my own house earlier this week, I got into a little tiff with Susan as a result of something that happened at the breakfast table. And she came to sit down at the table next to me, and she asked if I could move my drink. Now, it doesn't help that I'm not a morning person. And it doesn't help that I kind of misunderstood what she was asking me to do. But in any case, rather than simply moving my drink or politely asking for clarification, I gave her a look. And I'm not even sure what the look was or even if I could reproduce it. But the look I gave communicated everything. It communicated that I was resisting and that I was being prickly about it. And it was all evident from the look. Now, you tell me, how do you think I felt when I sat down to this text to read this, to get ready for this sermon? And it says, love is patient, is not easily provoked, and it bears up under provocation without complaint. Do you see all the small ways that we're not doing love right? And in fact, we're kind of blowing right through what God has called us to do when he calls us to love each other. We are too often too easily provoked. We are too often just looking at ourselves and trying to seek our own. We're not looking out for the, the needs of our brothers and sisters. Their happiness is not our happiness. You know the reason that we can't rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, like Paul tells us to do in Romans 12? Because we're seeking our own. Paul's saying that's the opposite of love. My hunch is that as, as you survey this list and you set it next to your life, you're, you're probably going to see yourself coming up short in one or more ways. But don't let that discourage you. Let's take this word that God has given us in 1 Corinthians 13 together for what it is. It's God's grace to us, not merely to expose us, but to show us the way forward. He's not giving up on us. He's giving us this word so that we don't have to muck around in our own pride. He's given us this word and he's given us his spirit who empowers us to obey this word. And we have everything that we need for life and godliness. So don't be discouraged by this, but be renewed in your resolve to lay hold of what God has called you to be and to do in every single one of your relationships. So he's told us the necessity of love. He's told us the character of love. But finally, he talks about the permanence of love in verses 8 through 13. Now, the main point that Paul is making here is about love. Look at verse 8. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. The main point here is about love, but he's going to be talking about these other gifts because he wants to show that the permanence of love proves the superiority of love over all the gifts that the Corinthians were idolizing in their lives, especially this gift of tongues. And so that's why he begins verse 8 with this contrast. He says, love never ends. But the same thing is not true for the gifts of prophecy and tongues or knowledge. There will come a day when prophecy and tongues and knowledge, think maybe that gift, word of knowledge, all those gifts will be no more. When will that be? Well, look at verses 9 and 10. 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Verse 9 means that for, for all the good that prophecy and knowledge are for us now, we have to recognize that they are partial. Everything that the prophets tell us about God is true, but the prophets don't tell us everything about God that is true. There is more to God than we have seen and than has been revealed to us. Our knowledge is partial right now. And Paul's trying to get the Corinthians and us to see that it's wrong to treat spiritual giftedness as the ultimate These gifts are not the ultimate. They are temporary and partial. And when the perfect comes, they will disappear completely. So the question is, what is the perfect? And when is it coming? Well, Paul tells us what the perfect is in verse 12. (coughs) The arrival of the perfect is when we finally get to see God face to face. That's the end of the age. After the second coming, when we're raised up and glorified and we live with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. When the eternal state arrives, all these partial gifts are going to disappear. Well, why is that? Well, look at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. We have a family video that we often like to watch at our house, and it's a video of me behind the camera filming Denny when he was about three years old. And he's sitting at the the kitchen counter and he's eating Pop-Tarts. And I say to him, what are you eating? And he says, Pop-Toots. And I say, really? You're eating Pop-Toots? And he goes, no, Pop-Toots. Like he's saying Pop-Toots, but he thinks he's saying Pop-Tarts. And we go back and forth. Oh, you're eating Pop-Toots. No, Pop-Tarts. Pop-toots, and he's outraged that I won't say it right, but he's saying pop-toots over and over and over. We go back and watch this thing all the time. It's on YouTube. I can send you the link if you want to watch it. (laughs) But the whole thing is really cute because Denny was three when it happened. He's eight now. It would not be cute now. It would be infantile now. It would be, I mean, just think about if he did this when he were grown up. He goes over to his fiance's house for the first time to meet the parents. What do you like for breakfast? Pop toots. It's not cute anymore. It's just weird. When you're a child, you speak as a child, but when you are grown, you put away childish things. That's what Paul is saying about the revelatory gifts that they were idolizing so much. He's saying tongues, prophecy, word of knowledge, all of it is infantile compared to what is coming. This stuff is baby talk compared to seeing the Lord face to face. Why is that? Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. If you think tongues and prophecy are the ultimate spiritual experience, you're just wrong. It's baby talk. It's precious and valuable in its own time. But the time is coming when it will be no more. Because when the perfect comes, the imperfect disappears. And so Paul says in verse 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. 
Why is love the greatest of these? Well, right now is an age when we are marked, all of us should be marked by all three of these virtues, faith, hope, and love. All of us should have faith, hope, and love. But why is love the greatest? Well, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. In the last day, face-to-face knowledge will replace faith knowledge. There won't be any more faith. Hope is a confident expectation that God will one day complete his promises to us. In the last day, the fulfillment of those hopes will replace the hope. So even faith and hope are temporary. They're bound to this age, just like those other gifts are. But guess what is not temporary? Guess what exists in this age and will also exist in the age to come? It's love. Love never ends. We are to love each other now for the Lord's sake, just as we will love each other in the age to come for the Lord's sake. We can do that without a lot of things in this church. We don't have to have a sound system. We don't have to have a building. We don't have to have stimulating preachers. We could just have boring preachers. Maybe that's what we have. (laughs) We don't have to have gifted administrators. We could be just disorganized. We don't have to have great music. We could have bad music. But the one thing that we can't do without is love. We are nothing without love. So how are we doing when it comes to love? Are we loving as this text is calling us to love? Are we loving as Jesus loved us? Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and gave himself up for us. He became obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. That's how he loved us. Is that how we are loving one another? Jesus says that the world will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. Can they tell by our love that we are his disciples? We are not going to love each other because we are great. We are only ever going to be great if we love one another. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would take this word, seal it to our hearts, help us to believe it and to live it. Father, empower us through your Holy Spirit to be better tomorrow than we are today. Lord, make us holy and conform us to your image and help us to love as we have been loved. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.